Hey, everybody, this is Lori Rudiman, and welcome to Let's Fix Work. On today's show, I'm interviewing Barry O'Reilly. Barry is a business advisor, entrepreneur, and author who has pioneered the intersection of business model innovation, product development, organizational design, and culture transformation. Please do not turn off my podcast. He is so cool. He is an expert on how to question your beliefs and how to unlearn things. That's right. On today's show, we're talking about unlearning your assumptions, your beliefs, the things you know to be true that may indeed not be true and may be holding you back personally and professionally. If you want to get ahead in work and in life, Barry has some realistic and practical tools, tips, and techniques to help you unlearn, to unstick yourself, and to achieve greater success in your career and in your life. So if you're interested in a conversation about how to achieve your goals and to stop failing over and over again, well, sit tight and I'll be right back with Barry O'Reilly and more of Let's Fix Work. Work is broken. And so is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is picking up the pieces so you can take control of your career, put yourself first, and be your own HR. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. Hey, Barry. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Lori. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I like to have management consultants on Let's Fix Work, but I don't like the nerdy, the buzzwords, <laughs> the trite stories, you know, the motivational speaker. And I trust that you're a different kind of business advisor because you have fixed work for yourself. So why don't you tell us who you are and what you're all about? Yeah, my name is Barry O'Reilly. I'm a business advisor, uh, entrepreneur. Uh, I've done keynote speaking and and, and author. And uh, I tend to work with senior executives in Fortune 500 companies or scaling up startups where I'm based here in Silicon Valley helping them create high-performance organizations to innovate at scale. So my mission has always been to find amazing people to work with in innovative ways to achieve extraordinary results. And hopefully, I'll be able to share some of those stories and experiences with you and your listeners today. I love that because you did write a great book about helping people achieve extraordinary results. So can you start there and tell us about it? Yeah, so my, my first book was called Lean Enterprise. It was part of Eric Ries's uh, Lean series. So people might be familiar with the Lean Startup, which was a method to help entrepreneurs deal with uncertainty as they're building new products and services. Um, and as I was, gave me a great opportunity to work with senior leaders all over the world. But what I was finding was while learning new skills is tough, what was even harder for them was to let go of their existing behavior and thinking, especially if it had made them successful in the past. And really, while learning was tough, what was actually even harder was unlearning their existing behavior and thinking. So I started to see this opportunity to start to teach people how could they adapt their behavior to changing circumstances or finding the methods and mindset that would help them get a breakthrough as they tackle uncertainty. And this sort of allowed me to systematize the process to coach leaders to adapt their behavior to changing circumstances and coach them over many years to do that. And it's been a real pleasure to work with some of the most talented, competent people I've ever met in my life, but starting to help them have a system to adapt to uncertainty in themselves uh, has been real joy. Well, I think about the process of unlearning and I think about my parents who often said, Lori, the way we're going to parent you is we're going to do everything opposite of what our parents did. And that was also equally terrible. (laughs) you know, was not a successful winning formula for any of us. So how do you unlearn something? 
Well, I think, you know, when I tell people about unlearning, a lot of people get quite upset because they're saying, what are you, are you telling me everything that I know is wrong, that I'm, I'm doing the wrong things? But uh, nothing could be further from the truth. You know, the, the way I sort of think about it is, um, you know, we all have products in the market and we know that products continuously innovate their features to stay relevant in the markets that they're in. And similarly, humans have behaviors. So if you're not continuously innovating your behavior to adapt to the market you're in, essentially you are the one that's going to be disrupted. So I often say it's not organizations that get disrupted, it's actually individuals because they get held on to and anchored in legacy behaviors and thinking that made them successful in the past, but now limits their result. You know, because as your knowledge grows, simultaneously other knowledge becomes obsolete and outdated. So what you need is a system to recognize when your existing behavior or thinking is actually limiting your ability to succeed and then when to adapt. So the way I define unlearning is a process of letting go, reframing or moving away from once effective mindsets and behaviors that were effective in the past, but now limit your success. So it's not forgetting, removing or discarding knowledge. It's a conscious act of letting go of outdated information and making space for new information to inform your decision-making and action. And this is the sort of system I've developed to coach leaders and innovators to be successful. I'm curious about this system because we only know what we know. And many of us wouldn't know if our ways of behaving, our beliefs, our ideas are outdated. So what's the system like? How do we identify what's outdated and what's still working? Sure. Well, let me do a little session with you. I love it. Please. Yeah. Right. So, you know, often people sort of, first of all, they have to be open to unlearn or curious enough to realize, like, could I potentially need to change? How do you have got the humility and the curiousness to do that? But there's a couple of trigger questions that I often use to help people recognize signals that they probably need to adapt their behavior. So I want you to maybe like think about any situation or challenge, and I'll ask you a couple of questions and see if one pops into your head. So the first one I often say is, is there any areas where you're not living up to the expectations you have for yourself? Maybe there are situations you're not achieving the outcomes that you're aiming for. And maybe there's an area that you're struggling to adapt or you're struggling or avoiding altogether. Maybe you've tried everything you can think of and you're still not getting the breakthrough that you're aiming for. Does anything pop into your mind as I ask you those questions? Oh my God, my whole entire life just flashed before my eyes. You must hear that all the time, right? I mean, whether it's my personal life, my marriage or my business, there are all kinds of things that pop up and I'll be candid. I'll give you one. I speak quite often to human resources audiences. That's what I'm known for, but I'm having difficulty breaking out of that space and speaking to project managers and accountants. And I do it a little bit, but I'd like to do it more. But it's been very difficult for me to make that jump. That's a great example. All right. So often when we try and start to think about challenges to focus on, there's a set of behaviors that we naturally go to, the things that actually often feel most comfortable to us or most intuitive to us. Right? There's a reason you probably have such a strong affinity and success with the HR community. Maybe the behaviors that you use to reach out to people are very effective or optimized for that area. So when you start to recognize challenges that you want to sort of adapt, it's often sort of about describing what would be your story of success. So we know what the challenge is. And if we time travel into sort of two years time, 
Could you tell me like a, a story or like a press release? What would be happening differently if you had totally obliterated that challenge? Tell me some stories or examples of what would be different than today? Sure. I think the ideas that I have around changing the world of work and the messages that I have around work would be more universally understood and universally adapted. They wouldn't still be in this micro niche of HR. And I would also be using language around the world of work that isn't rooted in my knowledge of HR, but maybe a little bit broader and more accessible. Great. And what, what about your customers? What would they be doing differently? My customers would be seeing the humanity in their individual workers. They would be rewarding people for not only traditional performance based on like a nine box grid or through their nasty performance system, but they would be recognizing discretionary effort. They would be recognizing relationships. They would be rewarding people at work who were kind and empathetic and had good relationships instead of just rewarding people on this old notion that they provided greater shareholder value. Okay, great. Right. So a lot of things what you're describing here are like intense, but the one that jumped out at me is like looking for new behaviors that would be happening, right? So you describe things like a greater proportion of my audience would be outside of HR. That's an outcome that you're aiming for. So what I get people to try and do then is thinking about to quantify and constrain that outcome. So, you know, currently a percentage of your audience is in HR. You know, in two years time, what would you love to see if you were to try and do some percentages around that? What percentage would be in HR or what percentage would be in new areas? Or is there a very specific area that you would like to aim for? Yeah, I don't have a specific area, but I currently know that only in a good year, up to 25% of my speaking engagements are outside of the world of HR and 75% are within HR. And I would like that number to flip. That would be a specific goal. All right. Awesome. Right. So what I get people to do is start describing uh, measures of success, like quantify and constrain them. When would you want to achieve this by in the next year, in the next two years? I would like to achieve it by the end of 2023. Okay, so three years time. Okay, good. All right. So what I often get people to try and do then is like describe the challenge they're facing. So I'd like to increase my impact outside HR. I'll know I'll have succeeded when 75% of my audience are speaking engagements or outside of HR within inside the next three years. Right. Essentially, you've written now a sort of mission statement for yourself. It's quantifiable. It describes your challenge and it also describes an example of how you will know you've solved that challenge, right? So you've essentially set yourself up for success to design various experiments to try and get there, right? So, and, and what I get people to think about when you're trying to unlearn is it's important to think big, right? Like this is a big aspiration for you to flip your business yeah, yeah. like 180 degrees, right? And so it's a really, really important to like think big, right? Because that's going to force you to break free of your existing sort of often incremental approach to these things, right? Because what happens to us is we get stuck thinking about the obstacles that are just in front of our nose all the time. Yeah. It's like, why am I getting outside of HR? Why am I meeting the same people? Or when you ground yourself in the obstacles, you tend to just solve for that small obstacle right in front of your nose, which doesn't really let you challenge or break free your existing behavior. You just keep doing a lot of the same things again and again, or maybe a little bit of a skew on them. So when you sort of use these techniques like time traveling or thinking a bit further out, it does set this more bigger aspirational vision. And, and you're, you're writing a story. You're talking about what you'd be doing, your customers would be doing differently. And that's a really powerful way to like describing success for yourself, but also to other people you're going to work with. Because you can share all these artifacts with people, right? Here's my challenge. Here's my press release for solve the problem. 
I've identified this specific behavior that I'm going to flip into an outcome and quantify and constrain it as by saying 75% of my audience in the next three years are going to be outside of HR. So you're thinking big, but often when people talk about how do you start to attack that challenges, they make the mistake of then trying to go big and, and making these big investments that potentially require a lot of effort and have slow feedback cycles and potentially put them in a situation that they become too big to fail. So they're trying to force an idea to work. But counterintuitively, the way to get there is you think big, but you, you start small. Yeah, I can see that. Right. What's the smallest possible thing I could do like in the next week, in the next day, in the next hour to start moving in direction of achieving that outcome that I've described and iterating, like learning fast what works well for me and what doesn't. It becomes a really, really powerful mechanism for people as they start to tackle uncertainty. But because you're also starting small, it makes it safer to fail. And you encourage people to try behaviors that are not so obvious to them, not counter uh, or not so intuitive or natural or comfortable to them. Well, I can see why people would charge ahead and ultimately fail. Because if I tried to flip my speaking model in the next three months, I would alienate my current customers. I would confuse the market. I would try to do something without having established the right relationships, right? So I believe in this incrementalism. I have also written that press release for my life, right? Like many of us have done this as part of working in corporate America, right? The management consultant comes in and talks about, this is what Jeff Bezos has his people do. So you should do it too, right? Write this press release. I wonder what other reasons cause us to fail, cause us not to unlearn? Because certainly a rush to that big dream is one thing, but most of us write that press release and most of us fail. So what else gets in our way? Like, why are we messing this up? Well, the tough one is most people just do things that are comfortable to them. <laughs> yes. Well, that's human behavior. <laughs> it is, right. And this is sort of the counterintuitive part of it. If your existing behavior was working, you wouldn't have the challenge you identified. And yet, when we get in these scenarios, we go to what feels comfortable to it, what feels certain and what feels perceived that we can know we can do. And like again, counterintuitively is your existing behavior is potentially not working. Therefore, you're going to have to do something that's a little uncomfortable that maybe you aren't excellent at. You're going to have to build competency in. But by going through that process, you know, that's where the opportunity to not only develop yourself, but also find out what works and what doesn't and potentially get the breakthroughs that you need. And again, this is why starting small is actually so important because it makes it safe to fail. And often, you know, the problem, what happens with people is people focus on results too much. You know, what you should actually be focusing on is that you're attempting, that you're trying that you're being vulnerable and putting yourself out there and giving things a go and celebrate your attempt, not the result. Because if you get good at attempting, you'll find a way to iterate and find a thing that works for you. If you focus on results, you'll try thing once, say it doesn't work for me, I'm not good at it, I don't want to put my perfect record of results at jeopardy, so I'm not going to try that, I'm going to stick to what's known to me. And there's no growth there. You know, Imagine people who follow your show may have read fantastic works by Carol Dweck on growth mindset and how you need to continually push yourself out there. Maybe Bernay Brown and her work on vulnerability and how important that is for us to actually grow and succeed. And even research at Google with the Aristotle project where, again, the number one performance indicator for high performance teams is psychological safety. How safe do I feel to sort of show up as myself? 
So, you know, all the research points in this direction, and yet our conditioning over the years of industrial management or top-down, one person knowing what to do, telling other people what to do, our fear of failure, all these things get in our way. So the strategy I always encourage people is, yeah, think big, have big aspirations, write those one-pagers. But the way you start tackling them is by starting small and learning fast what works and what doesn't for you as you iterate to your answer. And I think that's probably the bit that people miss out on um, or they find it's too big. You know, and this time of year in January, classic example, you know, everyone's written down that I'm going to be fitter this year, you know, and they they go (laughs) to the gym first day it's open and they're like in there for four hours, you know, working as hard as they can. And then they go on the next day and they're like sore and they're tired and they maybe last for two hours. And then by the end of the week, they're like, they just give up where again, counterintuitively, you know, by starting small, by just getting out of your house, walk around the block once, do two blocks tomorrow. I feel successful that I've taken a small step towards the outcome I'm aiming for. If I want to be fitter, great. I've walked around the block today or I've, I've taken one carb off my plate and I've added a piece of lettuce. Like it's celebrating the small step that you're trying and moving forward. That is actually the technique to help you succeed. I like this world that you live in where incrementalism and vulnerability are celebrated. But I think most of us have this experience at work with major progressive organizations even where they're results oriented and there's no space for emotions, right? There's no crying in baseball. There's no crying in corporate America either. And I find it really interesting that you've had luck and success with companies taking this approach and helping leaders unlearn. And I want to know, who are they? (laughs) Where do they exist? And can you give us an example of a client who's been successful in this approach? Yeah, I know. I'm happy to share lots of stories from this. And specifically, I think even as you're describing this, there's not a lot of people out there that have these beliefs. Most of the system or corporate world is designed to suppress this type of behavior. So, you know, I often say that I have actually a really small market of clients, but they're the best clients in the world. Because they're the people who actually really want to get outside their comfort zone, tackle uncertainty, find their edge with excellence, and therefore that's how they get edges in the market. So one of my businesses is a company called ExecCamp, where I get executives to leave their business in some instances up to 12 weeks with the goal of launching new businesses to disrupt their existing organizations. So often when I say to people, I get execs to leave their companies for one or two, three months, they they think I'm crazy. But again, these companies are the ones who realize that the existing way of trying to get people to change their behavior, sitting in a classroom and teaching them a workshop for two days and magically thinking they're going to change their behavior doesn't work. In the US alone, $365 billion a year is spent on corporate development and only one in four executives say it has any impact to their business results. So again, if you're true to being even results orientated, that's a poor result. You need to change your behavior, right? (laughs) And and yet people keep doing it. You know, so uh, International Airlines Group are one of my clients. They own British Airways, Iberian, Velling, Aer Lingus. They're the sixth largest airline group in the world. I took six of their executives out of their company for eight weeks with the goal to try and launch six new ideas to disrupt the airline industry. Now, it was extremely uncomfortable for these execs like to leave their business. They're, they're used to telling people what to do. Like They were outside their comfort zone. 
but it gave them the space to be more expressive, to be more expansive, to try things. It was a small group. So if they were failing, they were just failing in front of one another. I mean, one of my favorite stories was one of the CTOs from the airline groups had come up with this amazing idea for revolutionizing the airline booking experience. And he was convinced it was going to work. And we just had to implement his idea. He's an expert in the area for 20 years. You know, let's just go implement it. But we managed to convince him to try and test his idea with some customers. So how do you think the test went? Well, it probably went poorly. It was a disaster, right? Customer didn't understand anything, what it was about. What do you think the exec's initial reaction was? Well, he probably blamed the customer. Damn right. You know, like this silly customer, they don't understand my idea. They don't know how to book properly. Exactly. So now, you know, then we got him another customer. Same result, got him another customer, same result. We went through this sort of about three or four times. And then I sat down to reflect with him and I was asking him, what do you think the problem is here? And this was sort of like his unlearning moment, right? Because he realized that he was pushing information onto customers and telling them what they wanted instead of pulling it from them. Uh, His expertise had actually become a blind spot. You know, a lot of his assumptions were actually incorrect. So this was like a huge breakthrough for him. He realized, actually, it's the idea that sucks, not the customer. You know, this reactivated his curiosity because he started to see his assumptions really more as hypotheses. And how quickly could he test those hypotheses to find out what works and what doesn't was actually the system that he needed. And he went on to be one of the best experimenters I think I ever worked with, where he was literally like coming up with hundreds of new ideas. And it's funny, like about two months after the exec camp, he sent me this email and he was like, hey, one of my team came into the office today to ask me to sign off a new product that we're about to launch. And what do you think my response to them was? I was like, he goes, why are you asking me to sign it off? You should be out in the airport getting the customers to sign it off. Oh, that's awesome. It is awesome, right? That's really great. It makes me think about a Harvard Business Review article that I read about a year ago that said the happiest employees are always learning, but maybe it's that the happiest and most engaged employees are always unlearning, right? I mean, unlearning is a form of learning, correct? Well, and that's what I mean by it's this system right? You have to recognize both where do I need to develop and learn new behaviors? And then what has become obsolete and outdated and needs to be unlearned? So, you know, I try to think of it a bit like a cup, you know, if you just keep pouring stuff into it, the cup's overflowing. And what you need to recognize is what to take out and then what to replenish. Or just like the way your computer memory works, you know, it loads up certain um, memory for certain tasks and it unloads other I think having the system to recognize when to make those transitions is is what becomes powerful. Interesting. You mentioned this industry of corporate learning. And, you know, I could do like a 15-part series on how terrible corporate learning is. And it's just... I imagine. Yeah. Yeah, it's just so bad. But there's money in corporate learning. There's power in corporate learning. There's tradition in corporate learning. And we have quite a few executives and HR professionals who listen to this podcast. And they really feel like corporate learning is part of their employer brand. It's the thing that differentiates them. It's a way to connect to the human employee. So if they have that opinion of themselves, which may or may not be wrong, how can they look at this differently? Yeah, I think, again, a lot of the existing systems are designed to lock you into the existing opportunities. You know, the good old days where you could only be an executive when you had an MBA, or you could only be a leader if you went to Stanford or Harvard or Cambridge or Oxford or or these prestigious entities around the world where you sit in the classroom for a week and be told to think differently and then 
you leave the last room and just go back and doing all the same things that you did before. <laughs> like your your behavior doesn't change. Or wait, let me push you a bit further. Or the CEO makes a decision to buy a learning management platform. And they think this is going to be the great differentiator. We're going to learn through micro learning or video learning or blah, blah, blah. All the innovative ways that people are trying to sell you on these learning platforms now. And what I fear is that they're locking people into five-year, 10-year, 15-year long contracts of mediocrity. So I don't know. What do you have to say about all that? Yeah, that's exactly what I believe. You know, like the question I get asked a lot when I start working with companies is we have a mindset problem here. We need to shift people's mindset. And yet the way we think we can change mindset is just by exposing people to new information. I just watch this course or take this class or, you know, when you reflect on that strategy and ask yourself, how many courses have I been to where by sitting in a room and or reading something, it really changed my behavior? Like, what did I do differently? You know, and I think for most people, we're lucky if we take one thing away from a class that we do and institute it into the way we work. So counterintuitively, the way to think differently is actually to start acting differently. We actually start have to focus on new behavior because when you do something differently, you get a new experience of the world. You get a new perspective which then gives you information contrary to your existing mental model. And it causes dissidence that you're like, hang on a sec, that's actually going to shift my mindset. And then as your mindset shifts and you see the benefits, you're actually encouraged to change your behavior more often. Very simple example. You know, like in most organizations, they're functionally organized, right? You have um, an analysis team, a design team, an engineering team, operations team. And one of the huge breakthroughs we've seen, and you've mentioned Amazon, who popularized this concept of two pizza teams, like small cross-functional teams that are big enough to be fed by uh, two pizzas. So basically, like six to eight, where you have designers, engineers, product managers, all sitting and working testers all together. And the level of performance that they get and and outperform functional teams, there's tons of research out there to support that. But again, by acting differently, by you having to sit with a cross-functional group as a designer, hearing someone asking you, well, how am I going to test it? Or someone asking you, how are we going to productionize this? Or how am I going to design it? Your whole experience of the world shifts because you're behaving differently, right? You're not just sitting in your silo, creating these beautiful requirements documents, just throwing them over to someone next door and saying it was perfect when I got it done. You actually have to experience the world differently. And I think, you know, these are some of the most important parts where I talk a lot about leaders as well, is if you're asking people to transform, to innovate, to change, you know, you have to be the one to go first. You have to role model new behaviors. So your team saying, well, look, if they're trying to change, God, maybe I should be trying to change, (laughs) you know, and my favorite example of this is in book where the CEO of one of the largest banks in the US, you know, he was asking their teams to go on their transformation initiative. I always call them like Project Phoenix, the one that's going to rise the company from the ashes, right? And the interesting part about him and his leadership team is they decided that they were going to try and work in a more experimental test and learn way. So we designed some experiments where they would sort of look at what they were going to try and do differently for the week. And it became very obvious to him after two weeks working together, we sat down and reflected on their results. And he saw that they were very output based. All the meetings, people would just sit in and talk about, I finished the document, I ticked the box, my task is done. But no one talked about outcomes. Like, did we increase customer engagement by 20%? Did we reduce customer churn by 10% by doing these initiatives? So this is a huge aha moment for him. But he didn't just stop in his team or executive team and share that. He went to his desk and sent an email to 50,000 people in the company 
and said, hey, folks, I'm asking you to try and transform the way you work. And as a result, we're trying to do this as a leadership team ourselves. And what I've realized is that we're very output based. We just, did we get our documents done on time? Did we finish the task? Did we do the meeting? But what we need to be is more outcome focused. Like, are we reducing customer churn by 20% in the next six months? And how are the steps we're taking impacting that? So this is tough. You know, I realize it's a hard thing to do, but we're trying to make those steps ourselves. So good luck, everybody out there. Try your best. I literally was walking around that bank and people were like stopping me in the corridor going, we've never seen this happen before. But again, it creates agency, vulnerability, safety. And today they're, you know, the fastest growing bank in the top 10 in the US. And they're absolutely obliterating their customers because they've created this culture of metrics and outcomes and then stories of people trying to try new behavior, succeed or struggle, but share that so other people can learn from it. And I think that's one of the most profound parts of all this work. Well, I have really enjoyed learning, thinking about unlearning. <laughs> like all of this has really been a lovely surprise. You know, normally I speak with consultants and they have a pretty strong point of view and they're pretty obnoxious, but this was not an obnoxious conversation. I'm really pleased with it. And I would love for people to read your book, to learn more. So where do they go? How do they find out more about you? Yeah. So my website, barryoreilly.com, you can find uh, all the various different books I've written or podcasts as well. They also host and lots of talks and examples from places I've been doing this work and happy to share and love to hear feedback from people. Maybe if they've had an unlearning moment, just put a hashtag on learn on Twitter or social media and I'm sure I'll see it and respond. Well, before I let you go, I have to tell everybody how we're connected. I think that's really important. And for me, I met someone in my life last year who's absolutely changed my life and changed the trajectory of everything. And that person is Esmond Harmsworth, and he is my book agent. And he is also your literary agent as well. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about the person who is Esmond and how someone like that could just get us to connect because he is a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, so I was very lucky uh, to meet Esmond. You know, when I was trying to figure out how to write on Learn, I was went out to reached out to a number of different agents. And I'm an experimenter, right? So I always try to like think big about a book or an agent that I work with, but start small about how I could find the right person to work with me. So I sent every of these agents a copy of my proposal. And I was looking for who would actually be the right fit for me. And what really stood out about Esmond is that he had lots of constructive criticism or good challenges. And I learned a huge amount from my interaction with him, both about how we could work together, but the kind of help he could provide me with. So by thinking big and starting small with a few agents and testing what, who might be the right one, I learned fast uh, that Esmond was the right person for me. And it's been a pleasure to work with him over the last number of years to bring on Learn into the world. And I look forward to, if I ever have the energy to write another book again, I'm sure Esmond will be the person I'll, I'll reach out to. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that because I think a lot of people are confused about what an agent does besides, you know, take a portion of our earnings. And for me, Esmond has been a coach and an advisor, and I'm glad to hear that you've had the same experience with him as well. Pleasure. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks yeah. for having me on the show and best of luck with your book. Thank you. And thanks again for being a guest on Let's Fix Work. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Barry O'Reilly. If you want to learn more, you can head on over to laurierudeman.com forward slash let's fix work dash 93. Danny Osmond and his team at Emerald City Productions produce Let's Fix Work. 
If you have feedback for us, want to help us get twice as good, dominate the marketplace, unlearn some of our bad behaviors and learn new things, you can hit us up at hello at letsfixwork.com. Now that's all for today and we hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Let's Fix Work. If you're ready to make a real change in your workplace, start today by number one, subscribing to Let's Fix Work on the Apple Podcasts app or iTunes or Stitcher or Android or wherever you listen. Number two, write a five-star rating and review. And number three, share it with a friend, colleague, or coworker who you think would enjoy our episodes.